News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Why are we just so fascinated by crows? I mean, their behavior is so intriguing, sometimes a little scary, right? When they like dive bombing at certain times of the year. Well, our next guest has been studying crows for years, trying to figure out how it is that crows seem to recognize human faces. And so they've been conducting some really interesting studies to try and figure that out. So Dr. John Marsloff is a professor of wildlife science at the University of Washington and joins us now. Well, thanks so much for joining us this morning. How did you get started studying crows? Well, they're super common. They're interesting. They were all around me in Seattle. I'd studied other corvids before coming to Seattle, and it was a natural bird to to start looking at and a good way for our students to learn about how to catch and tag and observe wildlife. Okay, so how smart are crows? What did you learn? They're smart. Um, You know, all animals are smart in their own ways. Crows are particularly smart at living with people. We found that they can use a variety of our resources for food and nesting, and that they recognize individuals that are good to them or bad to them. How did you find that out? Like, what was part of your testing? Well, to find out, um, you know, how they use our resources, we would tag and follow birds around the city and, and learn where they where they bred, what they ate, to identify how they might um, see different people. Um, we knew that as we were watching them with these other studies, they seemed to pay a lot of attention to us. So we thought the next time we captured birds, we would wear a mask and we wore a uh, kind of a gross caveman-looking mask, and banded the birds with that on. And then we'd walk around campus later um, in the areas where we banded birds, and we had a lot of unbanded birds as well, and record their observ- record their reactions to us, which when we wore that caveman mask again was, was quite alarming. They would uh, swoop after us and give alarm calls and join in a group to push us out of the area, what we call mobbing. And when we wore uh, other masks that we didn't use for trapping or no mask at all, uh, that behavior was extremely rare. So you're saying they recognize faces? They recognize human faces for sure because we could change masks and affect their response towards us. And this has been going on now. We're This is the 17th year after we did our trapping And those birds and the birds that have seen others scold us and mob us um, are still reacting to that, what they perceive as a dangerous face. Okay, so what what did they perceive as a dangerous face? Were you able to determine that? What aspect of the face, like its nose or its eyes? No, we couldn't determine that. We knew it wasn't the clothing we were wearing because that varied a lot. We knew it wasn't the the body shape or the type of walk or anything like that, because we had many people do this experiment wearing the dangerous masks. And we had a lot of different masks that we used in different places for the study. Uh, We've maintained the caveman study, but the other ones we did shorter term, a few years. And um, we know that one mask that was dangerous in one place we used for trapping was reacted to, and in another place we'd wear the same mask and it wasn't. So... I think they just memorize the entire face, to be honest. Um, you know, the gestalt of it, the hair, the look of the nose, the, the eyes, 
all of that is is important to the bird. It's an easy way to recognize us. I do love, though, that like you use this caveman mask, and that was kind of like the dangerous mask, and then you used a Dick Cheney mask, too? <laughs> what was that all about? We did use a Dick Cheney mask on our campus. That's the control. So we wanted something that looked similar to a caveman. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, this was back when he was vice president, so um, it was it was kind of a fun joke to do. Uh, I never... Uh, expected this experiment to last so long. And now when I tell people, oh, it was Dick Cheney, a lot of people are like, who is that? <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but, you know, we wanted something similar, something that was stiff faced like a mask. I mean, the caveman mask is pretty exaggerated. It's, you know, got big eyebrows, kind of reddish look to it. So it it would seem like something easy to recognize. But as I said, we did do experiments in other places around Seattle where we had very realistic masks that we actually had a professional mask maker make of our friends' faces. And uh, we'd wear those around and we got the same sort of response. If you did something bad to the bird, um, they responded strongly. Okay, so then, Dr. Marzoff, where do you take that then? So what is your question about crows when you see how they perform here? You think, okay, so now what do you want to know? Well, what we what we wanted to know next was where in the brain this was coming from. You know, how did the bird use their brain and their sensory organs, their eyes or their sense of smell or taste, um, to make this decision? And we did show in the lab with um, brain scanning um, technology that the part of the crow's brain that was reacting when they saw that dangerous face again um, was the amygdala and on the right hemisphere of the bird, which is exactly the same part of the brain and size side of the brain that would be reacting if you were looking out and seeing something you saw and learned it was dangerous. Right. So, so that was the first thing. Right. Sorry, that was the first thing. So kind of drilling down to understand how this occurred and, and was it the same as, as we would use to, um, to learn a dangerous uh, topic? And it is. So crows are, are fascinating then. So does that just make you think we need to study them more or do you have more questions about this? I do. Um, I, and I'm interested in crows, magpies, and ravens. They're all of the same family of birds. They're all smart, big-brained, social, long-lived, all of these traits that sound pretty familiar to us um, that allows them and probably pushes them to be quite smart and, and live in their environment. Um, so other questions I have with crows, uh, in particular, I think how long this learning and discrimination lasts, we're continuing that experiment, um, on the Seattle campus. As I said, we're now in year 17 Wow! and the last bird that we actually captured with the caveman mask has died as of last year. So I'm really curious this year to see um, if if I get a stronger response by the other crows on campus that that have just learned this guy is dangerous from hearsay, um, literally. And I expect they will, um, but I'd like to test it this one more time. I can't wait to hear more about it. Thanks so much for joining us. You're absolutely welcome, Simi. 
That's Dr. John Marslaw, professor of wildlife science at the University of Washington, talking about the years and years that he and his team have been researching crows and their ability to recognize faces. I know a lot of people have crow stories out there. Uh, your interaction with a crow would love to hear it. Send me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Right, I have no idea what's going on here, but Scott Chance, our contributor, is apparently going to tell me what I did wrong. Hi. Hi, Simi. Uh, what, what did I do wrong? Well, first of all, don't shoot the messenger, please. But uh, <laughs> as you know, I frequent the website Reddit. Uh, I'm a Redditor, as we sure. call the people. And uh, this is a place where people come to express their opinions, air their grievances, especially in like the subreddits. One of the ones I'm on is the Vancouver subreddit. Y- you know that I'm not on social media for this exact reason, right? But the thing is, Simi, uh, that's why I am here is to tell you the things that you're missing out on. But like, am I missing or am I just deliberately ignoring it all? Well, perhaps. For my own, for my own sanity, Scott. Maybe, maybe. So you're going to bring that to me even though I do this to protect my sanity. I feel like this is something that you might want to know about. It could be important to uh, some decisions you make about your future, perhaps even your personal safety. There are some people who are upset about the number of Canadians who are going south of the border to shop in Bellingham. Oh, I know One this. of which is yes. you. Yes, and this has been a thing for a long time, yeah. but it is flaring up again. Most recently, it's flaring up again. Particularly, they're pointing out people who are causing lineups at gas stations uh, and people who are overbuying dairy products. They're specifically upset because apparently, I didn't know this, but apparently in the States, dairy is subsidized by U.S. taxes and as a result, some Americans think that their taxes are paying for you to get a discount on your milk. Okay, well, let me rest your mind on a couple of things. One, I don't fill up on gas when I go down there because I drive a, a plug-in hybrid. Sure, okay. Don't need that. Uh, I can't even tell you the last time I filled up on gas. <laughs> um, also, uh, don't buy the milk down there because you know why? I have a family that really loves milk. Like, uh-huh. I mean, loves milk. We go through several uh, jugs of milk a week. And for some reason, they don't like the taste of it down there. So uh, my friends at the grocery stores here will tell you I'm still a regular here. Now, okay, but you do you do go down pretty often. Like what would you once a week? I'm gonna guess. No, no, Um, once a month. I mean, I have have Nexus, so once a month, maybe one, maybe twice a month. Okay, yeah. I, I mean, at least in my experience, and maybe a lot more, a bit more variety. during the holidays and stuff. And there, I for sure, there is better variety there. Shopping yes. cross border is an experience. Have you ever had any sort of um, interactions or incidents with people because they see that you have a Vancouver license plate? Um, no. However, I can see why. Like, I think about that a lot because I think in terms of you know news stories when I when I'm down sure. there. And if I do fill up on gas, it's usually at the kind of Costco gas bar that they have there in yep. Bellingham. And I have been there and I have seen um, people with BC license plates with just like filling up jerry can after jerry can after jerry can. And I watch it and I think... I can see why some locals might not be happy to see this when that happens. Yeah, There's also like an element of bravado, I suppose, that some Canadians take down there with them. Like one of the posts. We shouldn't. We are. And I agree. One of the posts on this Reddit subreddit thread that I was telling you about, people were sort of talking about Trader Joe's and some people who had come to Canada were talking about. I don't go to Trader Joe's. For sure. But just the the way that some people talked about this, it's like, oh, Trader Joe's, uh, you, you know, we have them in this part of the world, et cetera, et cetera. And someone else said, oh, no, Vancouver has a Trader Joe's. It's in the neighborhood called Bellingham. 
<laughs> which I think I think may have upset some people thinking that, you know, uh, residents of Bellingham have their own identity. They're not just a, a sub-neighborhood of Vancouver. In fact, they're it's an their entirely tra- different yeah. country. It's their Trader Joe's. <laughs> we are just guests there. Guests taking advantage of the really, really great prices. And variety. Chocolate-dipped sure. uh, potato chips, I, I would think say. It, like, I've been to Trader Joe's once or twice. Not sure what all the hype is about. It, to me, it, it is just a lot of processed food, I and I try say, to avoid processed food. So I just, I'm like, well, this is just a lot of it. So yeah, and this wouldn't matter as much to you as well. But the Trader Joe's whiskey is uh, that actually, matters zero to me, right? But it's Buffalo Trace, which is like a really, really great brand of whiskey, and is you know moderately expensive. And when it's sure. labeled as okay. Trader Joe's, it's great. So people are after that type of thing. But I suppose it all just serves as a reminder that uh, if you're going south of the border, you know, just Bring your manners. And Bring behave. your Canadiana. And we wouldn't yeah. want, like, I, you know, you don't want people to behave like that up here. No, absolutely not. And, you know, they know it's us because of our license plates and because of supposedly our good nature. So, you know. I mean, the let's... joke about the Costco in Bellingham is it is the Costco Canadians built. Right. Because the reason they built a bigger, nicer Costco there is because of how busy it is with all the Canadians coming down there. And bu- a lot of them do buy a lot of dairy products there, right? And listen, I'm not going to... I'm not going to throw stones here because right now times are tough. And, yeah. if you, and yeah, yeah. there's a lot of groceries in the States that are not cheaper than Canada. And if you're a savvy shopper, which a lot of people are, you know what's cheaper here, what's better quality here versus what is cheaper there and what is better quality there. But honestly, these days with the way prices are, people are just trying to make it their dollar go as far as they can. Yeah, absolutely. And again, no blame for that. I just think that uh, we can avoid some of the nastiness on social media. And I know you avoid it anyway. Oh, yes, but, I do. But uh, just, just <laughs> by, you know, be, being patient, right? And I get just you spend nice the time driving people. down there and stuff. So you want to get back as quick as you can, wait in the border, all of that. But if you're agreeing to do that, just be nice, right? Yeah. And also buy local whenever you can. If you if you can, even if it's like a little thing, buy local when you can and let, just disperse your money. That's okay. all. So now that you're aware, Simi, just uh, watch your back next time you go down I'm there. I'm not going to go. And, you Scott, know, you're making me paranoid represent now. Represent us well. I so know that you probably I do. do. The one thing I enjoy is, believe it or not, grocery shopping. Yeah. And are you, now you're going to ruin it for me. Well, just, you know. Now wh- you're going to make me feel bad. I think that you're, you're, you have good manners and you're generally a I very try. nice person. I think you are one of the people that probably represents us well. Jeez, so I, just continue on in that. Oh, I don't know. Now you're making me feel really <laughs> guilty about this. Thanks a lot. Scott. You're welcome. For that. You're very welcome. Gee whiz. That's our Scott <laughs> This is Mornings with Simi. Time for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Vaughn. Good morning, Simi. And is it too obscure a cultural reference to, for me to say we need more cowbell? You think that's obscure? <laughs> <laughs> I think God, that's I love a, that sketch. Everyone's oh. ca- that, everyone has that same reaction yeah. to that song. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I gather you're going to have the lands minister on to talk about this consultation. I put that in quote marks that he's doing on the plans to change the Land Act so that in future, Crown land in BC will be co-managed on a consent basis with Indigenous people and the provincial government. You're going to do that this morning. Yes, we've got that, uh, I think, coming up after the 7.30 news. Nathan Cullen is going to be joining us, and we have a lot of questions about that. So you've certainly raised this. I'm sure they've been calling you, trying to explain it to you, too. Yeah, they tried. But let, let me just, for the benefit of the listener, to really highlight the difference between how the New Democrats proceed when they want the public to know 
what they're doing and how they proceed when they don't really want the public to know what they're doing. So let's start with yesterday's announcement on the crackdown on international students. So we got a media advisory on Friday that this was coming. The premier talked about it in an interview on the weekend. At nine o'clock yesterday, we get a full-blown news conference with the minister, another minister, validators saying this is a great thing. We had students. We had presentations in three languages, right? It went on for an hour. And when you were done, you knew this is a big deal. The government is doing something, whatever you think of what they're doing. That's how the New Democrats go when they want the public to know and the news media to know they're doing something. Now, in January, Nathan Collins' ministry decided we were going to have a public consultation on changing the law so that in future, the 95% of BC that is crown land will be co-managed by indigenous nations, 200 of them, and the provincial government. That's a big change in the law. It's going to legally enable all those agreements that they negotiate. How did they let the public know what they were doing? Well, basically, Simi, they didn't let the public know what they're doing. They circulated their intentions to, quote, stakeholders. They didn't even put out a news release to the rest of it. It took news organizations, Vancouver Sun, the Globe and Mail, others, stumbling upon what they were doing here several weeks into the process. So there's the contrast. They go out of their way to make sure you know what they're doing when they're proud of it and they want you to know what they're doing. When they would sooner the public didn't even know until this thing is sprung on the public later this session of the legislature, uh, that's how they proceed. So whatever mm-hmm. the minister says to you today, he's got to explain why he's so secretive about this, because that's the real issue here, as I see it. Yes, and that's exactly what we're going to be talking to him about, too. Uh, I, I just want to go back to the press yeah. conference that with, with a lot of information yeah. in it from yesterday on the cap on international students. It does seem to me that they're still waiting on the kind of really the numbers to try to figure out what the impact here is. Yeah, look, uh, so this one isn't exactly a, a great example of the government knowing everything that it's talking about either. This, it does look like a bit of a rush job. So Ottawa suddenly announced it's going to do a crackdown on international students because it's been an enormous surge and there's growing evidence that a lot of the training programs, particularly in private uh, institutions, are pretty questionable. So yesterday we had Selena Robinson, Minister of Post-Secondary Education, saying the government slamming the door on regulation of new uh, training institutions for two years. So that's a cap, a firm one. Uh, Second of all, the government's going to be cracking down on bad actors, which again is needed. The interesting thing to me that happened is she gets asked, what is the impact of the federal cap on BC. And the reason we asked that is because on the weekend, the premier said that Ottawa had sent preliminary numbers along on how the cap is going to work in BC. Minister says, well, to be honest, I don't know what the numbers are. Excuse me? The premier said on Sunday, the province has the numbers and you don't know a day later what the numbers are and you're the minister? Nope. She didn't know. 
They didn't get us the numbers, Simi, the preliminary numbers, until late Monday afternoon. Now, we talk about one hand not knowing what the other's doing. The premier says on Sunday we got the numbers, and they're going to be a challenge. Not until late Monday does the government actually give us the numbers. So the preliminary number for BC, and this is the ministry's estimate, is there will be 50,000 permits for international students in BC this year. Um, last year, there were about three times as many. There are some distinctions. The provincial number, the new one, the cap, doesn't include um, K-12 students, graduate students, master's students. So we don't know how that adds up. But that's still a pretty big drop. That sound, uh, Ottawa huge. said, yeah, Ottawa said across the board it'd be about thirty-five percent for the whole of the country. But they also said it would be prorated. Well, it sounds like BC is going to take a bigger hit than thirty-five percent. Okay, that. So, how are they going to deal with that? How is that going to be doled out then? Well, since the minister said she didn't even know the numbers when she was talking to us at nine in the morning, her office didn't get us the numbers until late Monday afternoon. Understandably, she doesn't know how it's going to affect. But the emphasis they're putting on this is, okay, we're going to crack down on the bad actors in the private schools. There are private schools that are diploma mills. There are private students where people pay thousands of dollars to come here to BC to study, and they discover there's no classroom and no institution. It's all online. So there's ample evidence they're bad actors. But the idea that you can somehow or other deal with all of those problems just by eliminating the bad actors sounds to me like a stretch. I think there is going to be an impact on the legitimate private schools. And Simi, I think there's going to be an impact on the public institutions, uh, the big universities and colleges, because they take a lot of these students as well. And Simi, as you know, they make a lot of money off them. It helps them yeah. keep down tuition and helps them not have to go to the government for more money to run their programs. Okay. And so when, and also they have to make these decisions soon, right? Like that's yeah, going to impact their budgets for next year. So yeah, how soon will they be able to break all this down? Well, you know, another element of this is the premier in Ottawa is going to the federal government and saying, we want some exemptions. We want some exemptions for areas where we need more students, uh, health care, child care, uh, construction skills. Uh, the province doesn't want to cap those because there's a shortage of workers. Uh, Selena Robinson had that lovely line yesterday, we've not been making enough babies here in British Columbia, so we need to import them. Uh, preferably not babies, preferably you know <laughs> right. people ready to step into these jobs with a bit of training. But yeah, I, I, BC's, uh, the, the premier said don't cap but target, and they went ahead and capped. So one of the things he was doing in Ottawa yesterday, and he was down there also to attend the state funeral for Ed Broadbent, um, one of the things the Premier's doing is he's pleading with Ottawa, don't do this, you know, hit us with a sledgehammer on this, because what we need is targeted caps and then some kind of system, which the province is going to take on, to weed out the bad actors in the private institution. So that's the plan. But at the moment, Ottawa is just talking about a big global number and you over there in the province, you figure it out.
All right, we're back with Von Palmer from the Vancouver Sun, catching up on things uh, that were said. Also by the Premier, we have to talk about some of the other things that he said uh, during his media availability yesterday. Yeah, so as I mentioned, the Premier's in Ottawa. I meet with Prime Minister and some Cabinet Ministers and talk about everything from heat pumps to uh, the cap on international students that they've imposed here on British Columbia and looking for some relief. Uh, he also got asked about the double gaffe on the weekend on his social media accounts, where um, the Premier's heading was to mark International Holocaust Remembrance Day. But what you got when you read the postings, and one was on Twitter and one was on Instagram, was the Premier's regret, regret understandable, uh, marking the uh, mosque attack in Quebec, which the anniversary is, was Monday. So it's it clear that somebody took the posting intended for Monday and posted it twice on a different event. And it was embarrassing because obviously it's a very divisive issue. And so the premier was asked about it. And he said, well, he, he, he said what he said earlier, which is he apologized. And he also said that it was taken down as soon as it was spotted. Okay. Um, he said, it's unacceptable what happened. So I always wonder when politicians say something is unacceptable, what do they actually mean? Well, that? yeah. So he said, okay. He said, we put something in place to make sure it doesn't happen again. So I gather from what he said that that means they're going to vet their postings, somebody other than the person who does the posting. I mean, we know the premier doesn't write his own postings, okay? So Presumably, they're going to have some kind of fail-safe mechanism, according to what the Premier said, so that the person who does the posting, somebody else is looking over their shoulder to make sure they're posting the right thing and proofreading it or whatever they're doing. Why wouldn't they so have had a it. fail-safe already? You're talking about the Premier yeah. British Columbia's uh, yeah. social media account. Yeah, and given, I mean, we know people's careers are destroyed by unfortunate social media postings. We know they're forever. They they took these down, Simi, and, and if you've seen all the coverage on this, some of the coverage said, refers only to a Twitter posting. There was also one on Instagram, which people captured, right? But we know those postings survive. They go on forever. So yeah, I would have thought they already had a mechanism to make sure this didn't happen and that what actually happened here was the posting was wrong, the second posting was wrong, and the failsafe didn't work either. So how many mistakes is that? Uh, anyway, the Premier said it's unacceptable. So he got asked, serious thing here, right? Is anybody fired over this? He said, well, we don't discuss personnel matters with the news media. That's not a denial, Simi. No, it's not. Just note that's not a denial. And, you know, given how much embarrassment this could cause, I mean, I guess somebody was saying to me yesterday, yeah, well, everybody makes mistakes. Yeah, they do. And, well, it's kind of obvious what happened here. The Monday's posting got mixed up with Saturday's headline. Okay. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah. this is so important right now, and yeah. everything is so highly sensitive in the world situation <laughs> in regards to these groups. This seems to me that if you work in the premier's office, you would know about that sensitivity. Therefore, you would be yeah. extra careful. Yeah. I said to somebody who was making excuses for this yesterday, I said, imagine, imagine how this would be viewed by the New Democrats. If Kevin exactly. Falcon had posted an unfortunate thing about Soji, right? 
or about LBGTQ rights. Everybody would have jumped on it and said, ah, that's what he really thinks, right? That's what he really thinks. And if he came out and said, I was a staffer and put the wrong message up for the, at the wrong occasion, um, everybody would be suspicious. And you're right, Simi, because this issue is so sensitive, it was triply important that the premier's postings were already being vetted by at least two pairs of eyes. And clearly it wasn't. Yeah, they caught it quickly, but the backlash started quickly too. So was it the backlash that drew their attention to it? Um, you know, as I said, I, I think everybody accepts their mistakes and we've all talked ourselves into trouble on social media. Uh, but having said all that, we've also all learned, uh, you know, go for a walk around the block before you send out something that's really controversial or have a member of your family who has your best interests at heart read it before it's posted. Yeah, that seems like it needed. To, so I feel like this isn't going away, though, Vaughn. It's been a couple of days and people are still curious yeah. because I think it is because it is the premier's office and you would expect a little more care. Yeah, you know, and there is, I mean, you only need to look around on the wonderful institution that is social media to see all kinds of conspiracy theories around this. Well, okay, you know, well, as I let's... said to you yesterday, from long experience, I've learned to never assume a conspiracy where mere incompetence will account for it. <laughs> and I think that's what case is here. But, you know, you can see why people are suspicious, right? Yeah. They've, uh, you know, they're going, uh, well, you know, do these guys always uh, tell us the truth up front or do they try to minimize the impact of what they do? But I think the thing that you said absolutely perfect about this is that if the other party had done this, if somebody yeah. else had done this, you just yeah. know they'd be making a big deal out of it. So fair is fair, I guess. Uh, Vaughn, thank you. Yeah. Bye-bye, Simi. That is Vaughn Palmer there from the Vancouver Sun. This is Mornings with Simi. Will the United States retaliate or not? There's a lot of tension right now after an attack on a U.S. military outpost in Jordan over the weekend. Three American soldiers were killed. Now, there's some confusion about exactly what happened and why, but there is definitely pressure on President Joe Biden to get the United States more involved in the Middle East. So let's find out what's going on now with the help of our global Washington correspondent, Reggie Giacchini. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. So what has been the response from the White House on this? Well, I mean, look, the White House has been uh, quietly loud over the last couple of days in that they're not coming out uh, and showing whatever cards they're holding close to their chest. But we do know that they are planning something. The White House yesterday, uh, the National Security Council spokesperson, John Kirby, uh, came out to say that there will be a response for what took place uh, in Jordan. But the response is going to be on U.S. time and you know, a decision that rests on the shoulders of the U.S. president himself. What does that mean? We still don't know. When might that happen? We still don't know. But, you know, you're right that pressure is building on Biden to do something. At the same time, there's also mm -hmm. pressure on Biden to not do too much. OK, so what exactly happened here? Do they know? So, well, we, we know and we don't know. We understand that there may have been a, a, a drone that trailed uh, a U.S. drone that was returning to the base uh, in Jordan uh, that ultimately carried out that strike and killed three uh, service members. We know that the Pentagon says that the breach is now under investigation so that they can ensure that something like this doesn't happen uh, again. But this is now the deadliest incident involving U.S. service members since the war uh, between Israel and Hamas broke out on October 7th. And this 
this is part of a series of attacks. I believe it's 165 attacks on American infrastructure or American interests in the region. Part of why there's so much pressure on Biden to do something. But again, there is a general fear here that doing something could drag the U.S. into a war, which is problematic on the foreign scale, but it's also problematic domestically in an election year. Okay, so do we know who was responsible for this? Well, uh, there is, a, you know, the, the, the likelihood here that, that Iran, or at least an Iranian proxy in the region, uh, has been, you know, said by White House officials and Pentagon officials, but uh, there are fingers that are being directly pointed at Iran, uh, and this is very rare that the U.S. will come out uh, and blame Tehran for something. Iran says, look, we didn't do anything with this. We had no operational impact input into what was going on. But these proxies are military, uh, militarily connected to Iran. They are financially backed by Iran. Uh, and the question here is, will the United States go after the proxies in the region again, like they've done in the past? Or could there be a more direct target on Iran itself, which obviously would you know, expand the kind of kinetic energy that exists in the region right now? It's what some Republicans want, but it's not what some hawkish conservatives hmm. may want so that there, there's a lot resting on the shoulders of biden no here because any move is going to potentially send the u.s in one way or another okay and at the same time i know they've been trying to work out a deal on on immigration and there has been aid to ukraine tied to that and aid to israel tied to that so uh it's clearly international matters are forefront right now for the white house has iran said anything about this well, I mean, Iran has pushed back uh, to say that they are still not directly involved in this. But they've also said that, you know, if the United States does anything that 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 is a a direct target on the country itself, that that would be a red line for Tehran. You know, worth pointing out, the White House has said, look, three service members of our military died. That is now a red line for us. Uh, some former Pentagon uh, officials yesterday said that the United States needs to come out with a new strategy here. Look, Iran may be saying that it's not involved, but targeting Iran in an old school way of using tactics from wars beyond wars before may not be the best thing forward here and you know maybe looking at things by way of cyber warfare or of, of information campaigns to try and get messages out to the iranian people which you know frustrates the the iranian regime may be the better way of going forward rather than trying to you know carry out some kind of strike that could ultimately you know turn what's what's already kind of a smoldering fire in the region into a more kind of you know robust issue that, that right. the rest of the world doesn't want. Okay, so then is there any indication as to when uh, there will be a decision announced or when the president might say something? Uh, well, I mean, look, it's it's interesting that, that the president has not really come out to speak. Uh, we saw him in South Carolina over the weekend. He was very quiet at the White House yesterday. A couple of pictures were released. Whatever the president decides to do, obviously, will be in conjunction with the National Security Council and the Pentagon, and something will, will eventually be leaked when something happens. But when we hear them say that they're taking their time. This is not something that's going to take them weeks or months to try and figure out. They will try to create a response. Um, it's just a matter of what is the White House ultimately going to do, and will somebody come out and talk? President Biden is in Florida today. There is no press briefing from uh, the White House or ability to kind of ask a question. So it is a wait and see. And the problem being, he's going to face pressure from Republicans to do something now. And he is also going to face you know pressure from within his own party to say, look, this needs to be a measured response, but it needs to be appropriate. What does it mean? It's a wait and, qu a wait and see question. OK, so we'll see about that. But also, let me ask you, how close are they on this immigration deal? 
<laughs> well, I mean, they're close in that there's been a long-standing group of bipartisan senators working to try and get something done here, and we could see the bill come to the floor of the U.S. Senate this week and potentially pass, despite the fact that Donald Trump does not want it to pass. But House Speaker Mike Johnson has said that whatever comes to the House from the Senate is likely going to be dead on arrival. What does it do? It holds up funding for Ukraine, for Israel, for the Indo-Pacific region, um, and it also holds up you know any kind of border security measures from from being put in place because donald trump doesn't want that to happen so all this deal that that they can actually agree on right that they can get done is going to get an important issues is likely not going to get done because it's a presidential election year because Donald Trump wants to be able to run on the fact that the borders are a mess. Uh, and if they're able to start securing the border, if Joe Biden sh- clo- closes down the border to some kind of uh, immigration or kind of reins in immigration, it gives President, former President Trump um, something to not be able to rail against on the campaign trail. He came out and said, look, blame me for it if this if this kind of policy fails, if this bill fails. But ultimately, the blame will be thrust on Biden. At the same time, they want to impeach the Homeland Security Secretary, Alejandro Mayorkas. Um, and if they get a deal worked out, that also throws impeachment in the air. So politics playing a huge role here um, in, in potential you know, plans that could, that could benefit the U.S. This is so bizarre to me. They want to impeach him for not doing anything, but they're also holding up the deal that will get something done. It, it, this is how the Republicans work. They want to ensure that they that, that they can throw a wrench into right. a plan or throw a stick into somebody's spokes because it helps them short term might not help them long term. And that's how we are where we are. Okay, thank you for that, Reggie. Thank you. That's Reggie Giacchini, our Washington correspondent for Global News, waiting to see what the United States response is on the death of these uh, three American soldiers, a drone attack that happened in the Middle East. We will, of course, uh, keep you posted on that. This is Mornings with Simi. How valuable is a post-secondary education? I mean, more than ever, people are striving to get that degree. It's also now more expensive than ever. And an analysis shows that the average IQs among undergraduates has actually declined. What does all that mean? Well, Ross Pomeroy is a senior editor of RealClaireScience.com and joins us now. Ross, thanks for being here. Hi, Simi. Good to be speaking with you. How long have we been kind of measuring the IQs of post-secondary students? Sure. So these IQ tests have been occurring for a long time, uh, 80 years at least. Uh, They've changed over time just to be recalibrated based upon uh, new questions. And obviously, because times change, you know, we've over the over the decades, uh, society's changed a little bit. But yeah, so uh, these researchers in this new study, they... uh, aggregated a lot of these IQ tests that have been measuring the IQs of undergraduates specifically. This is just for undergrads, not for uh, people pursuing higher degrees. And they found that in 1939, undergrads' average IQ was about 119. And when they look at it today, it's about 102, which is just slightly above the average of 100. Do we know why that is? Like, is there something else that we can point to that shows us? Sure. Honestly, it's a it's a pretty simple explanation, according to the researchers. Uh, back in uh, 1939, I think about about 4.6 percent of Americans had a college degree, and in 2022, uh, it's about 34.2 percent. So a lot more people are going to college. And by the way, those rates are pretty similar in Canada. Uh, so that's really the simple explanation. Is back in 1939 when they started looking at these. Uh, 
uh, IQs of undergrads. The people who were going to college were basically the privileged and the very, very, very intellectually gifted. The colleges were not as prevalent back then. But today, college is, is, is portrayed as for everybody. So a lot more people are going. So necessarily, as more people go, we're going to see a bigger, uh, broader uh, part of the population going and not just the intellectually gifted, or at least the people who are going to score higher on those IQ tests. Right. Okay. That makes sense then. But what about the value of that degree? Has the attitude towards that changed over time too? So that's what the research has mentioned is a potential problem with more people uh, going after these degrees is that when you have uh, more people, again, uh, of, of broader uh, intelligence backgrounds, uh, going to college, uh, it, it is more difficult uh, for, for some of these people to graduate. Um, for example, some, some numbers for you. One influential, influential study showed that uh, for white American undergraduates with an IQ only slightly above average, their chance of graduating is essentially 50-50. Uh, the rate of dropping out is negatively linked with IQ. The lower an undergraduate's IQ, the more likely it is that they'll leave college without a degree and potentially saddled with debt. As you noted in the tease for this, uh, obviously college degrees everywhere are going up uh, in price a whole lot. Yeah, very expensive too. And so why is that? The people, are they feeling that it, it they're not getting a value for that money that they're spending? Yeah, so for reference, just to put some numbers behind that, uh, in 1980, the inflation-adjusted price to attend a four-year college full-time was $10,000 annually. 30 years later, it's about uh, close to $29,000. And again, yeah, so I mean, uh, as, as these numbers go up, uh, the price of, you know, people are going to be doing the math in their head. Uh, if they, more people are getting the degree, uh, its worth is necessarily going to be less because more people have it, uh, but the prices are going up at the same time. So as the value of a degree, just from an employer's standpoint, is, getting, you know, it's a baseline. Everybody has it, but the price is going up. Is that necessarily going to be worth it? Uh, we're going to see. We're going to find out because it does look like, according to some data, that the enrollments in colleges are starting to go down. It's almost like the marketing for getting uh, a university or college degree was too successful, wasn't it, Ross? I, I, that, that's a great way of putting it. And, and obviously, uh, governments had a big hand in this. Uh, for Just as uh, in uh, the U.S., Canada has its own issue with uh, uh, federal student loans. Uh, for example, some numbers there, about 1.9 million Canadians uh, owed the federal government a total of 23.5 billion uh, in student loans as of uh, July of 2022. Uh, and tuition fees are now 13 times higher than they were 50 years ago. Uh, in 2018, student debt contributed to more than one in six insolvencies in Ontario. Uh, nearly three, quarter, three quarters of post-secondary students claim, seems as though you always need a post-secondary education for anything. But they also state it's uh, very hard to afford a post-secondary education. Right. So do you think that's contributing to what you were just saying there, though, that the numbers are actually dropping for people who are going to post-secondary institutions? Uh, what numbers specifically are you talking about? Well, I thought you said like not as many people perhaps are as interested in going to college or university now. Correct. Yes. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh just some data out from the Wall Street Journal uh, earlier uh, last year. Uh, for the first time, their poll showed that 56% of Americans think attending college is not worth the cost. Just a decade ago, 53% responded that it was worth it. And these numbers are, again, mirrored in Canada as well. And skepticism is strongest among people 
who are college age who would be most likely to go. So uh, those people are just more dubious now of going to college. That is a huge shift. So is that, do you think, unfolding in the United States then? will uh, And it's such it's so expensive to even go to college these days in the U.S. in particular. Is it turning people off? I mean, the numbers say it absolutely has. And I think there's just simply more ways to get an edu- education now. Uh, there's uh, the internet and all kinds, and there's obviously the, the economies are changing now. We're, we're seeing the rise in AI, which could uh, automate a whole lot of jobs these uh, in the coming years. Who knows what's going to happen? Uh, the service sector is also growing. And we're also seeing, uh, for example, wages uh, go up for people working in the service sector, which honestly doesn't necessarily require a college degree. I, I really think there there was a big problem with governments overselling the value of a college degree. And now mm-hmm. that the economy is kind of changing and rebalancing, it may be on the way out, but we'll see. That's just obviously up in the air. More data to come. Ross, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much, Simi. That's Ross Pomeroy, senior editor of RealClearScience.com, who's been writing about the analyses and, and data that's been collected in terms of people going to college and university, particularly in the United States, uh, but not seeing as much value because of the cost, uh, but also IQs are dropping for people who are going to university, which is really interesting. This is Mornings with Simi. They circulated their intentions to, quote, stakeholders. They didn't even put out a news release to the rest of it. It took news organizations stumbling upon what they were doing here several weeks into the process. There's the contrast. They go out of their way to make sure you know what they're doing when they're proud of it and they want you to know what they're doing. When they would sooner the public didn't even know until this thing is sprung on the public later this session of the legislature. That's how they proceed. Okay, so that's Von Palmer for the Vancouver Sun talking to us about BC's plans to change the Land Act. These are substantial changes governing public land access and use. Changes that, for the most part, as Vaughn has been explaining to us, have kind of flown under the radar. At least that is the perception here, right? The thing is, the public consultation is going on right now, but you probably hadn't heard about that. And the legislative changes are set to happen this spring. That's pretty fast. So what is the rush? Why hasn't the government been more open about all of this? Well, Nathan Cullen is the Minister of Water, Land and Resource Stewardship and joins us now to talk about that. Thank you very much for being here. Good morning. First up, what are these changes? What's being discussed here? These are changes to what we call crown land, which is the vast majority of land in B.C., It allows the government, the provincial government, to enter into an agreement with a First Nations rights and title holder, often over a very specific project. So recently, last year, we entered an agreement. They're called Section 6 and 7. That's what part of the UN Declaration Act they come from. We entered one of these agreements with the Taltan Nation over Nestate Creek Mine. This allows us to manage the mine, come to mutual agreement about how we're going to do environmental assessments and, and on down the line. So we've, we've actually done a bit of this already. Um, the changes that we're proposing and the public consultation started earlier this month um, allow us to enter into those agreements in the future elsewhere in the province. So this was always imagined in that uh, act that we passed four years ago, the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act which the legislature passed unanimously. Right. But would you agree that these are some pretty big changes in terms of sharing the public land of British Columbia? 
I, again, it's so what happens if if these changes to the Land Act pass? What it does is it enables the government to enter an agreement. If we were seeking such an agreement, like we did with the Taltan and Northwest BC last year, all of that process goes to public engagement as well. It doesn't passing this doesn't mean the next thing happens automatically. We have to go through an entire stakeholder engagement process with the community, with if there's a mining company, as the case with the Taltan was involved, they were deeply involved. And then that also has to pass through cabinet. By the way, um, since passing a version of this with the Taltan and that company, the company has been nothing but thrilled (laughs) with the process. And you can ask them, don't don't take my word for it, and others in the resource sector, because a lot of this will have impact on the resource sector when we look to enter one of these agreements because it provides the predictability of what the process is. It diminishes dramatically the potential for lawsuit because you already have an agreement between the province and the First Nations that's impacted. And that allows investors, it allows the resource company to know exactly what the process is in front of them and not face suddenly a lawsuit popping up or protests, etc. So the ability to get more predictable investment in BC is greatly enhanced. I, okay. One thing, I'm a bit confused why folks are surprised by this, only in that two years ago, the Vancouver Sun wrote about this exact possibility and the need for this Land Act Amendment to come. So I guess we're, some of us are taken a little bit by surprise. It was imagined in the bill that we passed together as a legislature that we would do these kinds of things and that the agreement that we signed with the Taltan is a very much imagine part of this whole process. Right. But if there is that out there, and I'm certainly hearing, like I've, I've heard, you know, from a lot of people in the last few days about this, I keep a close mm-hmm. eye on the news. I keep a close goings on on what happens in the government. And, and mm-hmm. I haven't heard a lot about this. So is that a, a the public, you know, not paying attention or is that the government not doing enough to let us know about these changes? Well, we're, I mean, the public consultations have begun. We, uh, we take requests from industry that are asking for more consultations. We've done 11 of those sessions already, and we'll, we'll do more. The Act the amendments haven't been introduced into the legislature yet, so we'll have that spring session and more debate in the legislature of all the elected people in B.C. and happy to engage. Like uh, there's, there's this, uh, I think, a narrative or a sense that there's something defensive in the government or something that's not being uh, forthright about it, but that's, it's the opposite in the sense of, We've entered these agreements already. This is the Land Act portion that needed to be changed in B.C. law, only allowing government, the provincial government, to have this tool to negotiate with First Nations, which, again, starts a whole new public process on that specific agreement. So I've heard it described by some that this is sweeping, this will affect every square kilometre of B.C. instantly. Nothing can be further from the truth. All it does is says, look, we passed the Declaration Act together as a province. That means it gives us the ability to make decisions in a new way with First Nations. But if people are confused about it, Minister, doesn't that mean mm -hmm. that perhaps the ministry and the government hasn't done a good enough job explaining it to people? I I am always striving to do a better job of explaining the intricacies of government, and we'll do more and better and take interviews that are requested and have those public websites and have the public sessions available. So we're keen. We're keen to talk about this. We think this... Again, we think it just came from the Natural Resources Forum in Prince George. We were at a mining conference in Vancouver. What is everybody in that sector talking about? Well, our ability to make predictable investments, our ability to have agreements with First Nations on the land. That's exactly what this does. So 
there's uh, the opposite of trying to hide this. Right. We're quite so, proud of these these motions and look forward to debate in the legislature. Okay, so for the general public then, like what kind of access will be guaranteed to these lands? Like who will have the veto power over access to Crown land? Yeah, so the the way it is right now, depending on what activity you're looking to do, right? You, If you have a provincial park or if you have some restrictions on the lands, those are the same. What this imagines is similar to the case. And again, the, the leading example we have is the Taltan, but we've also come to agreements on child and welfare agreements. We're, we're building a major hydropower line you, you, you know about across Highway 16. We're doing exactly that with that power project. So it's more about the proposal of something, right? That someone's coming forward and saying, I'd like to build this or we would like to construct that. It's an option. It doesn't, it's not required, but it's an option if the First Nations come forward and say, we'd like to enter an agreement with the province up front so that we know how the decisions are going to be made with respect to the project, and then we can proceed that way. And again, I, I can't emphasize enough, we're hearing this from those who are looking to invest in BC. We've had a very successful economy the last seven, eight years. This is a step towards that predictability, the certainty that folks are looking for. In terms of the public, in terms of folks going snowmobiling or somebody yeah. wanting to go for a hike, th- those things don't change. Like it, it, I, But is that I access don't... guaranteed? If, if there is a partnership between the government mm-hmm. and First Nations in a certain area, is mm-hmm. the public access to that area guaranteed? Absolutely, as much as it is today. So I'll give you an example. I, I'm also in charge of hunting and fishing regulations across the province. We have places and times when you can fish for certain fish and times where you can't. Someone would say in an extreme level, well, my, the public access is not fully guaranteed. Well, we, we have rules to make sure that conservation is in hand. You can hunt this time of year, not this time of year. Those things maintain. Um, and I think could be enhanced because what we're doing is having tables with First Nations, bringing in a deeper knowledge of things like hunting and fishing to make rules that actually work for the sustainability of those activities. So I think this is positive. I, I want to understand that people maybe feel a certain amount of fear or this is hyped up that everything is broadly sweeping the next day this thing passes. That's not the case. So let's keep talking about it. Let's look at the places where it's actually happened and how is it working out for, in the case that I mentioned, a mining company and the First Nation and the province. And I think it's working out really well. Okay, so where can people pose those questions or get more information than if they are, are feeling like they need to know more? Yeah, on the Engage BC website. I'll put it on all my social media this morning again, just to let people know. Um, industry and other proponent groups, often they come to us, as you know, in a sort of a more concerted effort. We've been holding, as I said, I think there's been 11 sessions so far. We'll do more as they come forward and, and show people exactly what it is that we're talking about, what we're thinking. Because again, this was, this was talked about when we signed the agreement with Taltan two years ago. This is exactly what we talked about when we passed the Declaration Act four years ago, that it allows the government, it gives us a tool to enter an agreement with First Nations, as opposed to fighting it out in the court, costing us all millions and millions of public dollars, and creating a lot of uncertainty for people who live in that very region that you're talking about. All right, well, thank you very much for your time. Of course. Appreciate that. That's Nathan Collin, Minister of Water, Land, and Resource Stewardship. Uh, Now, again, that public consultation is ongoing, so people can get involved. uh, And I know that people are going to want to weigh in on this, too. So Simi at cknw.com. We'll be talking more about this because it does sound like a big change. And clearly there is a lot to learn about it. We are all going to be learning about this together. So Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. 
So you've been hearing in the news about this week, Surrey Council passed the capital plan for schools in Surrey. It projects almost 10,000 new students over the next 10 years. But people say that number is way too low. Their own numbers show that right now, the Surrey School District is growing at a rate of more than 2,000 students every year. That is twice the rate that they just planned for in that plan that they passed last night. So how can you plan for new schools and new infrastructure if the estimates are too low? Well, we wanted to learn more about the formula, the process that goes into the planning, what goes into all of this. So joining us now is Gary Timoshuk, who's the vice chair of the Surrey School Board of Trustees. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks very much, Simi. Now, can you explain this process to us? What goes into putting together the capital plan? Absolutely. I'd, I'd love to be able to do this. First of all, it's important to recognize that what City Council passed, uh, passed last night was not our capital plan, but rather the school site acquisition charge plan. They're two different things. Uh, I'll just explain briefly that in the spring of every year, in May, the school board uh, singly uh, approves our capital plan. And this last May, it was $3.17 billion dollars. Uh, worth of schools, additions, and sites, 22 new schools, 10 additions to existing schools, and 14 sites, properties for, for future schools. Last night, the school site acquisition charge that was approved by council, which we're very grateful for, is a report of new construction within the city of Surrey and the, and the fees that the city, or sorry, the school district will collect on behalf of the city for future school sites. And that's what the report that was approved last night. So that report, based on new homes, again, talks about a lower number than what our um, actual projections are. As you mentioned, 2,000 students. You're absolutely right. Anywhere between 2,000 and 2,500 a year is what we're projecting over the next few years. Okay, so then why does this report contain the lower number? If If it's planning for new schools, you would clearly need more than that. Again, the report last night is just the school site acquisition charges, which is a charge that the city collects from developers uh, for the school district to purchase new school sites. So it's only new homes. So the other numbers, the difference, why that number is, is what it is, is because the other students are coming from existing homes already in the city of Surrey. Okay. Do you think that message has gotten lost? Because, like, I understand it when you explain it to me that way, but if even the mayor is pushing back on these numbers, like, do you wonder why isn't everybody understanding what you're explaining here? Absolutely, I'm wondering that, and that's why I was very grateful for the opportunity to explain it to to you. Um, I think it's just a matter of understanding. It is there's a number of nuances to our process. I should also mention, as as you asked about how is it developed, so... We get those numbers from the city. We have no idea, the school district, how many new homes are planned over the next five or ten years. So we get that information from the city. The information we have is the historical average number of students that come from each housing type. So, for example, how many uh, average students come from houses? How many average students come from townhomes? How many come from condos, etc.? We then take that number and extrapolate, and that's how we get the number that uh, appears to have caused a little bit of controversy, as you've mentioned, uh, as uh, just under mm. 10,000 new students over the next 10 years. Okay, so can this process be improved so that it is kind of more transparent and more accurate? I suppose it could be, but it's part of our requirements under uh, provincial uh, guidance to make sure we file these reports in the formats that are prescribed. It's not just ourselves, it's every school district across the province uh, that's required to uh, submit these reports. The capital plan in the early part of the year 
and then make sure that the school site acquisition charge gets approved at this time. Is there some disconnect there, though, Gary? Because clearly Surrey does not have enough schools. Enough schools haven't been planned for. Enough schools haven't been committed to in Surrey. So why is that happening? Well, that, that's a very good question as well. Again, as I mentioned, our capital plan that we submitted in May uh, envisioned 22 new schools 10 additions to existing schools and 14 new properties throughout the city uh, over the next five years. That's pretty significant, a value of $3.17 billion. Where the disconnect is, is that's what our ask is, but that's not what the provincial government is going to deliver. Uh, We hope for that, but we know that's not going to happen, and we hope that we get the majority of it. But that comes, uh, that's at the uh, the whim of the provincial government and based on uh, how they're going to divide up the money for uh, new schools across the province. So do you believe that 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 still works then? Do you believe that your planning for schools is good? It's just that the province is not like acting on all of the information you're providing. I stand by our numbers and I believe that our planning is very good. Again, I can't emphasize enough that we need 22 new schools and additions to 10 existing schools and 14 properties. That's just within the city of Surrey. So that's pretty significant. And I think that if the provincial government was able to say today, here you go, here's all these things you're requesting, uh, we'd be in much better shape. And in fact, we wouldn't have any portables in the city of Surrey. Yeah, boy, that is a huge issue. How many portables do you have right now? We're operating with uh, about 370 uh, portables right now. Okay, and so then why why do you think it is that the, even Surrey City Council is saying that they, they're a bit confused about this planning process? Well, again, I think it's, uh, it's, it's challenging for everybody to have a full understanding of, uh, of the numbers, the processes, and how we get to them. Uh, we do have uh, a request in, in fact, it was Council who passed a motion in December to have a meeting with us, and we're very anxious to have that. I think it's scheduled for May. I wish it was sooner, but sometimes... I know. Okay, wait scheduled. a minute. I have to stop you there. <laughs> I have to stop you there. So they asked for a meeting. They were confused. You said in December, yes, let's have a meeting, and the meeting is planned for next May? Uh, yes. And that's, well, that's, again, based on schedules. Uh, everybody's schedule is very busy when you're trying to get together uh, seven school trustees and, and uh, 10 people on council. Right. So then you must be frustrated to hear that, you know, hear the mayor on the news saying that, you know, she's not happy with these numbers. And you're thinking, let's let's get this solved. Oh, I'd love I'd very much love to be able to explain the uh, reports. And I know that people have explained them to mayor and council. Uh, through their staff and and making sure they understand how the numbers are calculated. Okay, so what are the next steps here then, Gary, in kind of fixing this process? Uh, Well, again, we're going to have a meeting, as I mentioned, uh, with the council, uh, Mayor and Council. Uh, We're looking forward to that. And uh, when we do, we'll sit down, we'll have a wholesome discussion about how it's calculated. And hopefully they'll have a better understanding uh, so that, as you mentioned a few moments ago, that you now understand how it's all processed and how the numbers are arrived at. Okay, so then what would you say, Gary, to parents in Surrey out there who who think, listen, we need to do our planning better? What would you say to them? Uh, again, I, would, I hope that uh, they've heard this morning on how we actually go through that, prop, uh, that planning. And uh, I think where the roadblock really is, is that the provincial government, we would love for them to be able to provide all of our requests on our wish list that we submitted in May. Again, 22 new schools, 10 additions to existing schools and 14 property sites. Okay, so how much of that is actually being acted on? Uh, right now, well, we're working on some projects. We've got two new schools actually under construction right now. Uh, but in terms of how much is this being acted on, it's part of the provincial government's uh, planning for their next fiscal year. We would hope that in the next coming uh, weeks, uh, we'll hear some good news. But you have to wait. So 22 new schools is what you've asked for. So we have to wait for the budget to find out how many you're actually going to get. 
That's right. Okay. You know what, Gary? I'm going to follow up on that because I want to know. So thank you so much for your time. All right, Simi. Thank you. Appreciate you explaining that to us. That's Gary Timoshek, who's the vice chair of the Surrey Board of Trustees, so the Surrey School Board, explaining it. You saw it in the news, right? Everybody's going, why are the numbers so low? Well, he just explained it to us exactly what is going on there, but it does make you wonder, why why can't Surrey Council figure that out? Why can't they ask those questions, get together with the school board and figure all of this out? If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. I know people do, and I will be closely watching the provincial budget to see how many new schools Surrey gets. How much of a priority is Surrey going to be? That's coming up in the next few weeks when the budget is released. This is Mornings with Simi. Here's a question for you. Does your employer still require a sick note from you if you have to take a sick day? It's true. Some some still do this. We're going to talk to our Scott Shantz about that this morning. I find this outdated, Scott. I totally agree. And I thought back on this when I, I saw that there this was sort of a trend that was still happening kind of post-COVID. And uh, I don't think, I think once in my entire life I've been needed I've needed to submit a sick note and it was for an extended absence like three weeks after a surgery I needed a sick note just for like documentation so that makes more sense right but uh, like for a normal like hey one or two days have you ever needed to submit a sick note for again for it was a um, complication that I had during pregnancy so I did have to have like reduced hours so for that I needed a sick note but that's the only time I can really but I have worked at places where a sick note was required I just don't think I I ever took enough sick days for that to kick in. Okay, interesting. Because I, I like you, I kind of find it, I don't know, archaic, almost like childish, you know, like a like a workplace asking for a sick note. But apparently it still it still happens all the time. And the medical community is actually getting really frustrated by it, saying like, look, we need to trust each other, uh, places, um, employers. This is ridiculous. It's a huge waste of our time, people coming in just to get sick notes so they can take time off. They should be allowed to take time off. And let's be honest, we all know that people take a day for themselves here and there, whatever personal day we call it. That's a mental health day. Sure, whatever. But like employers know that, employees know that. Let's just like move on is kind of the attitude here. So I spoke with um, an HR professional. His name is Mike Salvita. He's the president of HR management at Pivotal HR Solutions. And I asked him like, what's at the root of this? Like, why can't we just get past this? I I think it's a breach of trust. You either trust your employees or you don't. Uh, the employer still has control over what's really important. So why do you think it is that certain employers have a hard time trusting that their employees are being honest when they ask for a sick day? So that's a great question. Um, this practice has been around for years, ever since I can remember. You know, change is a difficult thing, but this should be a practice that should have started to fade away. When you tell um, clients that, hey, they shouldn't do this, do they often come up with stories or like instances where they're they're convinced that people are, are taking advantage? If you're in a, a goods producing, manufacturing, warehousing, those types of uh, industries, it's slow to change. Uh, they've got a story for everything. It's difficult to sell in uh, in certain industries. In your mind, is there a difference between a personal day and a sick day? And how do you regulate that? So first of all, it's a very, very, very small minority of employees who are trying to beat the system. You know, they need a 
sick day so they can go watch the baseball game or, or something like that. I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but it's a small, small minority. Right. Um, and, but if in the larger minor, uh, majority, these people are sick, do you want them to come and pollute your whole workplace? You'll go from one person sick in a department to five, six, ten. So, I mean, you have to have some belief that the vast majority are are bona fide when they say they're not well, and uh, having having them stay home is actually a smart business decision versus having them come in and pollute pollute the whole uh, group. On the other hand, um, I think uh, an employer has to focus on results. You know, I, I think we get uh, too micro-focused on was it a sick day, is it a moving day, is is it uh, I needed time to, uh, my grandfather's ill or whatever. I mean, at the end of the day, I look at results. Is the employee, does the employee have the skills, knowledge, and ability to perform the job capably? And are they performing the job capably? Somebody that has, uh, you know, too much absences or, or too many uh, situations is not going to be meeting, uh, not likely going to be meeting the expectations that uh, that are expected of them in that job. And you can manage that. You don't have to micro-focus on uh, how many days, but you can manage the fact that they're not here enough to, uh, you know, complete whatever tasks are, are required of them. So I, I think, yeah, you know, there's a small group that are probably taking advantage of it, but the vast majority aren't. So why would you set up punitive rules to control the, you know, 75, 80, 90% of your employees who are telling the truth and who are ill? I mean, the whole, the whole world uh, in the last five years has been talking about, you know, engaging employees, building better communication and partnerships and, and trying to, you know, build way better, um, relationships with their employees. How does this fit in? That's Mike Salvita. He's a human resources manager with Pivotal HR Solutions. And uh, one of the things that you and I talk about all the time is like streamlining and elimination of busy work and getting the most out of ourselves and other systems and stuff. And this just like stands so boldly in the face of that. Like, why why are we doing this? It's archaic. I think... You said it though. It's it it is part of the if once it's in the procedures and the protocol. I just find that some organizations are so trapped in that silo of this is how we do things that breaking out of it is too much. Well, that's what we're here for, Simi. We're gonna break them out like heroes, like rescue. Okay, we're, we're rescuing right. Listen, the workforce. Let me ask you this then, okay? Because the re, a lot of employers will say, yeah, but I have to because some of them some people are lying. Right when they're calling in sick. Yeah. Have you ever taken a sick day when you are not actually sick, yes, like physically yes. sick? Yes, of course we all have. But uh, that it's like he's talking about sick day, personal day, whatever. Call it what you want. Did you feel guilty? No. What did you do? What, what did you do? Did you go skiing? Like what was it? Oh no, I've never done it for something like that. I've done it because it's like I. I just need a break. I need a, a quote unquote mental health day, like you call it. Uh, maybe I could physically get myself to work, but I just know that I will be, it's like the four day work week thing. I'll be a better worker the following day 
just by giving myself this sort of mental break, which everyone needs at one point in time, and sort of like Mike was talking about, it's like breakage, right? It's like, this is sort of the cost of doing business. We know that people need this, and we kind of just, it all kind of comes out in the wash. I'm kind of fascinated by this because I've never done it. What? No. You've never taken a sick day when you're not sick? No. What about a mental health day? No. Personal day? No. You use a vacation day for all of those things? Yeah. Okay, so me, you and I are going to talk <laughs> after the show, and we're going to pick a day for I, you to do this. I'll I do even it. work on stat holidays because... <laughs> but then you get an extra day. I know, you, but I use that as a vacation day. And the reason why I do it is because even if I take a long weekend or whatever on this particular shift, I kind of feel like by the time I get out of bed and go downstairs and, you know, know, have a breakfast or a cup of tea or whatever, I think, geez, I would have been home by now anyway because of our hours. There is that, but right? it's, it's like the mental break. Uh, you need a you day, Simi, I can tell. Do you I? seem You seem kind of tightly wound these days. I don't think I am. <laughs> I deeply resent that, Scott. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, maybe, okay, I'm just curious to know, like, if people do this, like, do people do it regularly? Oh, yeah, people do it. Oh, I'm learning something here. So I'd love to hear from people on this. Simi at cknw.com. Have you ever taken a sick day when you aren't physically sick? Do you do this regularly? What was it for? Is it hard to do that? Like, does your employer give you a hard time? And I want to be clear. It doesn't, you don't have to do it just to go skiing or to the beach. It can be for mental health, right? Or like a personal day. I would say those are mental day. health things. Though. Yeah. Like if you need to go skiing because it's going to make you feel better. Okay. That's a mental health day. Fair enough. I'd love to hear from on this people on this. Simi at cknw.com. You can call or text our buzz line 604-331-2899. Thank you for that, Scott. You got to try it, Simi. <laughs> but now I can because people are going to wonder, is that what she's doing? They're going to wonder anyway. No, maybe. I don't know. We'll see about that. But yeah, let's wait. Let's hear from you on this one. Simi at cknw.com.